I am extremely excited for this conversation. Today is November 1st, the first day of the FOMC meeting. Tomorrow on November 2nd, we're going to get a lot of information uh, from Fed Chair Jay Powell. He's going to go out and speak. We're going to get uh, the summary of economic projections. We're going to get uh, how much they're hiking interest rates. But actually, you know, we're getting a little, going to get a little bit of a sneak peek today, one day before everyone else finds uh, uh, out about it. Uh, we are joined by Joseph Wang, aka Fed Guy, former senior trader for the Federal Reserve, and uh, Nick uh, Nick Timoros, chief economics correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, who is extremely well informed on the Federal Reserve. Gentlemen, uh, great to have you here. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I want to start by asking you both, what is going to, what are your antennae uh, tuned to? If there is any talk of not a pivot, but a moderation in in forthcoming interest rates or on on the balance sheet as well, what sort of verbi- verbiage, what sort of language, what sort of vibe are you are you hearing from? Because you know, just going back to the December 2018 meeting, the language there was was quite obvious. I think in the obvious in hindsight, not not then, but in hindsight, it was. It, you know, in the third paragraph, Powell talked about the slowing economy, how, how the market is is softening, and all sorts of stuff. Whereas I feel like now, uh, the, Powell is sort of only only leaving leaving breadcrumbs. So I'll start with you, Nick. Uh, what you know, you're actually you're going to be in the meeting, and you're going to be asking a question to Jay Powell. What? What are you going to be listening listening for? Well, I, I don't think it's any surprise. You know, the big question people have right now is, all right, you've done 475, assuming they do a 75 basis point increase tomorrow, which everybody expects. Uh, you've done four of these now. Uh, you know, what is the reaction function around the step down to 50? And people keep referring to that as a pivot. Uh, which is a pretty unhelpful concept, I think, as you alluded to, because to me, a pivot is is what happens when Jay Powell walks into that room to give his opening statement, and he says something that's quite different from what he's been saying for the last few meetings. If you want to look at kind of the overall tenor of the Fed message, just focus on the first sentence from that opening statement. And before, um, you know, in preparation for, for this podcast, I went back and looked. What's the first sentence from every, every press conference statement, uh, opening statement this year? And really since May, so four meetings now, May, June, July, September. Uh, in May, he said, before I go into the details, I'd like to take this opportunity to speak directly. Inflation is too high. We understand the hardship it's causing. We're moving expeditiously to bring it back down. And then he said something similar to that in June, July, and September. The pivot is when he no longer leads off by saying, this is the only thing we're focusing on and we're just so focused on getting inflation down. And so whether they change to hiking at a 50 basis point pace, whether that comes in December or February, you know, and and the market's obviously going to try to front run the pivot um, because, you know, uh, you're going to try to get ahead of that. But until that statement changes, I think it's very difficult to call it a pivot. They can still raise interest rates quite a lot more, shifting to a slower pace. Um, so I guess what what I'm listening for tomorrow is how much in the press conference does he even, you know, allude to this idea that they're they're deliberating how to step down. Uh, there is a lot of data still before the December meeting, but there's a difference in raising rates by 75 basis points. 
when you think you're still more than 200 basis points away from the terminal rate. And as you sort of see where you think you might need to land, if you're getting closer, then at some point they're going to want to try to, you know, uh, slow in to that destination. So that's what I'm listening for tomorrow. Thanks, Nick. So you're saying that a pivot will not be buried on page 11 of the minutes. It will not require a PhD in parsing, you know, economic texts or, or sort of you know, Shakespearean interpretation. It will be in the first or second sentence, and it will be quite obvious. Uh, Joseph, what, what do you think about this? And I agree completely. And Nick has a great piece out today explaining that very well as well. I think there are two things, as Nick mentioned, there's the pace and there's also the terminal rate. Now, the Fed could eventually, well, eventually they will slow down. They won't go 75 forever. You guys, we have to have some perspective here. Just a year ago, everyone was thinking the Fed would hike 75 and 50 was huge. And now we're at a place where the Fed has been doing 75 for some time. And we think that going from 75 to 50 is a big deal. I think what's more important for the market is how high we ultimately go. And we could slow down the pace of hikes, go to 50 and then go to 25, but eventually end up at a terminal rate that's above 5%. I think that level is more important for asset prices and the markets in general than how far we get there. Um, I think market participants seem to confuse the two a lot. And I think maybe not not without uh, without logic, because if you slow down a bit, you're probably getting closer to your terminal rate. But we definitely have to listen closely tomorrow to see whether or not Chair Powell has changed his assessment, or rather, especially when it comes to the terminal rate. Right. That's another key difference between now and December of 2018. Back then, they were only hiking by 25 basis points, and that's the smallest increment the Fed can hike by. So to decrease by less, you go from 25 basis points to zero. Whereas uh, by increasing each meeting, now you can go from 75 to 50 and you could do that for two more meetings and you can go 50 to 25. You can do that for four more meetings and then you, you will up in that 5% or even 6% uh, target. Nick, at what point do you, you know, what are the odds do you think that uh, after tomorrow's meeting, we will have sufficient clarity on the December meeting so that you know, not that the market's pricing in 100% chance of a 75 basis point or a 100% chance of a 50 basis point in, in December. But, you know, it, you really sort of break that stalemate that we have now in the, in the Fed funds sort of probability curve where now it's 50%, 50, 50%, 75. And also, if you do that, get the clarity, what is it going to be? Well, I guess I would answer your question with a question. Why would they need to change that pricing at this point? 50, 50 for 50 versus 75 in December. Why? Before you know what the October CPI is going to be, remember, they're going to get the November CPI, but they're going to get that on the morning of the first day of the meeting. Chair Powell will have it on the Monday afternoon, uh, so two days before the meeting. Uh, so so why why do they need to decide right now, uh, you know, what they're going to do in December? I think the, the reason they, they need to have some working idea of what their reaction function is here is because they're all going to go out and communicate publicly over the next four weeks. And especially after that, as the data come in, I would think they're going to want to try to form expectations around what they're likely to do in December. But does that, does that have to happen from the podium on Wednesday? I'm not convinced. I, I'm just not convinced that it does because there is enough data to come before December. It may be too soon to have high confidence about what they'll do. And just kind of to get to it, what's so what's the case if you're if if they're having this debate uh, right now for December, what's the case for 50? The case for 50 is you've done a lot. You want to see how these moves 
influence the economy. You are expecting to get more help on inflation from the supply chain. Commodity prices are lower. Housing is clearly slowing. Uh, you're not stopping just because you slow down to 50. A slowdown is not a pause. And there's a risk of a financial accident when you keep moving in big chunks. If you think the funds rate needs to get to eight or nine percent, then of course, you know, you keep going by 75. Probably you should be doing more than 75. But if you think that you're getting to somewhere, call it five percent ish, five point five percent, six percent, then maybe you, you don't need to keep doing 75s. The case for 75 is that you've been consistently wrong about inflation and you have doubts about your ability to model or forecast inflation because you keep expecting to get this disinflation, especially on the good side of the economy, and you're just not getting it. Meanwhile, the consumer is very strong. The labor market is not weakening enough. There's a lot of demand out there. You hear it on the earnings calls, especially some of the consumer-facing companies. Uh, and the other, I guess, argument is for, for continuing to do 75 beyond this meeting would be in the last SCP in September, you had broad agreement. I think 12 of the 19 thought they were going to need to get a terminal rate above 4.5%. So if you thought six weeks ago, you were probably going to end up above 4.5%. And your view of terminal might have even moved higher since then. Why not just get it done now? That has sort of been the argument that Jim Bullard with the idea of front loading has been putting forward all year. I think the case for 50 was probably um, enumerated uh, the best by Esther George uh, in her comments two or three weeks ago, where she said she's in the camp of slower and steadier, but she also said uh, that, you know, uh, the consumer has been so strong, it's very possible the terminal funds rate has been higher. And, and so I think you know, obviously in the last week, as there's been a lot of speculation around a slowdown in pace, some people have heard slower pace and they've equated that to lower terminal. And if you go back and you look at what Esther George said on October 14th, that isn't necessarily the case here. And uh, and so I do wonder how much we hear about that idea uh, to the extent that there is a socialization of stepping down to 50 you know, the idea that, hey, that doesn't actually mean a lower terminal rate. It could actually mean the terminal rate's higher. Right. A t terminal rate is the highest point the market is pricing in the Fed will get to. And that currently is around 5% in the spring of 2023. Joseph, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in September, we got the summary of economic projections where the Fed shares its forecast, not, it's not a forecast, but it's projections for GDP, uh, inflation, and of course, the federal funds rates. Are we going to get a summary of economic projections in the meeting tomorrow? I believe it's quarterly. It's uh, so the next time it's uh, December, right, Nick? Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, so so we will not. Okay, interesting. Um, uh, th thank you for that, uh, uh, Joseph. Uh, Nick, you brought up just how strong the consumer balance sheet is. And we've seen a ton of weakness in high value items that require often require credit to buy, such as uh, housing and cars. But in just having cash in people's bank accounts, uh, we the, the, the uh, U.S. economy is extremely strong, and, and we've got some really uh, some fantastic tar charts to, to show there. Um, Joseph, how about you start us out? Because you had a, you had a, you were early on this. You had a piece in. Uh, the early summer called The Money Still Flows, which is one of the favorite uh, favorite titles. And just it shows how much money there is uh, sloshing around in, in the system. So yeah, tell us, you know, I'll just start with this this chart from Bank of America, which which always blows my mind. This chart, this chart came out uh, in the 
Q3 uh, earnings uh, this year recently. And it just shows that for people who have, you know, have um, you know, $2,000 to $20,000 in the bank account, they have two to five times more money now than they did pre-pandemic. And you know, that's kind of a recipe for demand-driven inflation. So yeah, uh, Joseph, you first and then, and then Nick. Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me. so I think of inflation as continuing if people have money to spend, if they can afford higher prices, right? So, so for example, um, where do people get money to spend? They can get them from a, from a few sources. One most commonly is wages. When people have higher wages, if their wages keep increasing, they can continue to afford higher prices and that inflation can continue. And when we look at the employment data, and this is part of the reason why I think the Fed looks at employment data so closely is that we see employment continue to be very strong and wages increasing significantly. So. Right now, it looks like the Atlanta GDP now, the wage tracker is showing a 6.5% growth in wages, and that's extremely high and definitely not consistent on 2% inflation. If your wages are going higher, 6.5%, then obviously you can afford a lot more than uh, 2% inflation. So until that slows down, we can see consumers continuing to have money to spend. But there are other sources of financing as well. Uh, two other sources of financing from wealth and from borrowing. And so when I look at these other measures, it, it looks like the consumers continue to have a lot of money to spend. If you look at uh, consumer credit, for example, um, loans and leases and bank credit, they continue to grow very strongly. Consumers continue to borrow at rates that are um, far above pre-pandemic levels. And if that happens, that means they have more money to spend. And the last portion I look at is wealth because you can also finance your spending out of your current wealth. And if you look at the stock market, it's gone down a lot, but you know it's still comfortably above pre-pandemic levels. If you look at your home prices, your home equity, it's also gone down a lot. But if you look at a chart of the Case-Shiller House Price Index, um, it's dipped a little bit, but it looks like you climbed Mount Everest and just took a little bit down. So people still have a lot of home equity. And the last thing that I note, and I want to refer to Nick to this because he wrote a very good article about this, is that consumers have a lot of cash. And that's a function of um, fiscal and monetary spending from the past couple of years. I guess Nick can probably speak to that. He has a chart of it as well. Yeah, thanks, Joseph. I mean, I agree. Uh, great points that you made there. Um, so the chart uh, that, that Jack has here, this is uh, from a Fed uh, note that was published a couple weeks ago. It looks, you're looking at the household savings buffer, excess savings. So that's above and beyond what people would have saved, uh, through the pandemic by income quartile. Sometimes people say, well, yes, there's this, if you look at that, that's $1.7 trillion in excess savings through June. It's down from 2.3. So households have decumulated around 25% of that savings. Uh, and people often say, well, most of that's held by the wealthy. Yes, it is. I mean, the, the beige bar and the light blue bar, it's the top 50% has, um, about 1.3 trillion. So 350 billion for the bottom 50%. But that's still on a, you know, just very back of the envelope math. That's coming out to $5,500 per household for that bottom 50% of the income distribution. So I think one of the concerns the Fed has to have here is that uh, the consumer is very resilient right now. The housing market's going into a, a deep freeze. Uh, you know, asset prices have taken a hit this year for sure. And you see the progress 
in supply chains easing, commodity prices coming down. But that service inflation is still high and consumers are spending and incomes are not slowing very much, as Joseph said. And so the Fed is probably going to want to see a weaker labor market before they can be convinced that they've gotten on top of this thing. And, and Jack, you have that chart from the Bank of America, which mirrors Nick's points about deposits. And Bank of America, it's a huge consumer bank, so they have very good data as to exactly how much money everyone has. And as your chart indicates, even people who are, I guess, lower income have a lot more cash at the bank than they did pre-pandemic. And that means that they can continue to afford higher prices, and it makes the Fed's job a lot harder. Yes, and uh, Nick also has a, a chart from, I believe, the same article about cash-rich consumers, which shows uh, household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable personal income. And this is remarkable that it's it's still uh, – debt service payments are still near multi-decade decade lows despite the surge in interest rates. I'm wondering to myself just how this is possible. And Nick, I think uh, one reason could be – in in one of your articles, which is the duration of borrowing. If you have a 30-year mortgage that you took out at 3% and it's a 30-year mortgage, the duration is really long. So you're sort of locked in and you are to some degree insulated from interest rate hikes. You also pointed out how high-yield borrowers, I think you said something like a very a, very, a single-digit percentage of, of junk borrowers uh, have to refinance it, it, it soon, right? 3% maturing next year, 8% maturing I think by 2025, that's some Goldman Sachs. So it's not just the consumer, you know, the, the corporate balance sheet is in a better place too, to the extent that you don't have a rollover risk with these higher interest rates. And, you know, on this chart here, this is household debt service. Uh, you made the point that a lot of people locked in a sub 3% mortgage, sub 3.5% 30-year fixed rate mortgage for 30 years. So that means the Fed's in a different position here from the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Bank of Canada, where you do have more variable rate debt. And so that transmission mechanism from monetary policy to the real economy through the housing market happens faster uh, in those countries. We have, uh, you know, we love the 30-year fixed rate debt. And and so that just means that uh, even though it's going to really, I mean, a 7% mortgage rate is just going to throttle back uh, housing activity, and you're already seeing it, but it's not going to have as quick a channel to uh, consumer spending patterns. I have a two and a half percent mortgage and I feel like a boomer. Like, <laughs> so, you'll never move, right, Joseph? You'll, I'm you'll never going to move. And, yeah. Inflation's like 8%. I feel like I lucked out, really. And, and Nick makes a very good point. The transmission of monetary policy depends a lot on the structure of the economy. A lot of people seem to be looking at, let's say, Canada and the Bank of Australia slowing down their expected rate, rate hikes, thinking that the Fed would do the same. But they're in a very different situation than, than we are. In Canada, for example, your mortgage is about two to five years. And so you have to constantly renew. And in Australia, as Nick suggested, you have a lot of variable rate mortgages. So that means that when they when they don't have to hike as much to have the big effect. And so their decisions don't really inform what the Fed is going to do because the system, the financial system, the mechanism of transmission is very different. Mm. Uh, Nick, you are the author of the excellent book, Trillion Dollar Triage, which I recommend folks check out. I know Joseph is a fan of that uh, as well. And, and in that 
the title trillion dollar, you're not talking about rates there. That's about fiscal stimulus as well as quantitative easing. So let's let's take a turn away from interest rates and talk about the size of the Fed's balance sheet. When they expand their balance sheet, they're doing quantitative easing. Now they're doing quantitative tightening, which is reducing their balance sheet. Are they doing that by selling? No, they're letting uh, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries expire, uh, roll off, uh, so to speak, and the reduction, uh, thereby reducing the size of the balance sheet. Joseph, what do you think the odds are that uh, a Federal Reserve pivot, another Powell pivot, would involve a reversal of quantitative, te- quantitative easing similar uh, to the, as it did in 2018? You know, now the Fed says that quantitative tightening, which is at a maximum of $95 billion a month, uh, is on so-called autopilot, and that sounds quite convincing. However, uh, as you, you gentlemen both witnessed firsthand in, during 2018, they said that at the same time about about uh, QT that time, right? And uh, by by you know mid twenty nineteen, the Fed was actually not only not doing quantitative tightening, it was doing quantitative easing as well. Um, so yeah, Joseph, what do you what do you think the odds are that the Federal Reserve re- uh, uh, will stop will stop quantitative tightening or or reduce it? So do less sort of uh, the ninety five billion. Uh, Joseph, you first, and then Nick. My sense is that the Fed would like to make the path the Federal. Um, the federal funds rate is primary tool for monetary policy. It feels like it understands how that works better. I think it, my sense that it has a less of an understanding of how the balance sheet impacts. And if you look at academic studies, it's, it's very uneven. Um, there's a very interesting meta study that shows that if you're a researcher who works at a central bank, you will produce research that says quantitative easing does something. If you're a researcher that works in the private sector, you will produce research that says quantitative easing doesn't do much. And I think it's because they're not as familiar with how this works. They would like to have, like to kind of get out of that as a tool of monetary policy. So it seems like they would try to let that unwind in the background automatically, like you suggested, Jack, and try to rely more on the federal funds rates. But again, there seems to be some instability in the treasury market. And so we'll see if maybe they have new tools or maybe the treasury steps in to try to help with that. Nick? Yeah, I mean, uh, Joseph's the expert here on the balance sheet, but I agree with all of that. Uh, they've been very clear. They want this to be in the background. You know, Powell got in trouble for saying autopilot at the December 2018 press conference, even though that was exactly the way the Fed views this tool then and now. So maybe they'll use a different word, cruise control. What really I think they don't want is they don't want people like Joseph and Jack and me before every FOMC meeting to say, what are they going to do today with the policy rate and what are they going to do with the balance sheet? They want the policy rate to be the primary tool. And so that is why they have this sort of set it and forget it um, balance sheet approach. They don't like everything Joseph said uh, seems right to me. They don't understand it. They know it's harder to communicate. So they just want to let it run down. There's a lot of speculation right now around whether they will have to curtail the runoff sooner in 2023 than they would like to. Uh, But I think that really has to do with some of the plumbing around draining too many reserves. You're going to have a debt potential debt limit issue next year. So you're going to have a big fluctuation in the Treasury's um, financial account. Which is going to, which can distort sort of the supply of reserves because those are both uh, Fed liabilities. And then you have the overnight reverse repurchase program uh, with relatively high balances right now. And if those balances go down, then reserves don't drain as quickly. If those balances stay high in, in ONRRP 
or rise higher, you could get faster reserve drain. And so some of the uh, sell side banks have been saying, look, reserves are actually declining, even though if you look at overall assets, they've gone down just a little bit. I think the balance sheet's at 8.7 trillion right now from a peak of 8.9 trillion, but reserves have gone down by a lot more uh, than than just you know 5% or whatever that's been on the balance sheet. Uh, and so I think the question there is, are there other things the Fed can do to keep uh, the runoff pr- proceeding? Can they do some sort of modification for SLR so that you address that sort of unresolved issue uh, in the treasury market? Can they do something on the administered rates to get money out of overnight reverse repurchase, uh, the overnight re- reverse repurchase facility so that they don't have to tweak the balance sheet? Because I have a hard time seeing the Fed wanting to continue with a $7.8 trillion, $8.8 trillion, $8 trillion balance sheet far into the future. They just, they'd like that thing to come down if, if they can. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard for me to see them wanting mm-hmm. to change the balance sheet approach until they change what they're doing with interest rates. They're all supposed to move in the same direction. And that was what we learned in 2019. They stopped running off the balance sheet when they stopped raising rates. And when they turned towards cutting, um, you know, that was when they ended the balance sheet runoff. Uh, and they will continue. They want to continue to allow the mortgages to decline. So even if they were to pause, um, you know, balance sheet runoff in the way that some analysts on Wall Street are anticipating, they'd want to continue to move towards that treasuries, uh, mostly treasuries portfolio. And of course, it'll take a long time before they get there because they've got, you know, two and a half trillion plus of mortgage-backed securities. Right. So, so Nick, you're saying at this point, it seems like it is unlikely for the Fed to stop quantitative tightening, stop reducing its balance sheet while it is still raising interest rates because the Fed likes to have both of those channels run in the same direction. Yes. Uh, but what if, what about, what do you see the odds of the Federal Reserve cutting rates and still doing QT? Um, <laughs> I really, I mean, I, look, anything's possible. They'll have to decide when they get to these situations, but just kind of operating from first principles, what, what are their order of operations? Everything is supposed to row in the same direction. So when you're, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons they probably waited too long to raise interest rates this year was they didn't want to be hiking interest rates in November of December when they were still purchasing securities. Uh, they were tapering them, but they were still buying them and they stopped buying in March. So they, you know, they, they kind of want everything to move in the same direction. There's a lot of, you know, sometimes you hear commentary that they can fine tune their tools and do this with one and that with the other, but really it's, they're all supposed to be moving in the same direction. Everything they do, forward guidance, balance sheet, uh, it's in service of whatever it is they're doing with the policy rate. They're either tightening, they're standing still, or they're or they're cutting, uh, and they're they're not going to want to have to explain why they're doing different things with different tools at different times. I echo Nick's idea. So it's almost dogma within that everything has to go in the same direction. And I think they've perceived that to be easier to communicate as well. Now, this is not just true of the Fed. I think it's true of other major banks as well. Um, the ECB certainly is like this. There's been some dissent in the ECB, for example. Perhaps we can decouple the two tools because, for example, what if you're hiking rates and we have instability in the debt market? Maybe we can continue to hike rates, but also have some purchases to be supportive of that. So um, I think at the moment, the Fed is, is not there, but it, it's something that could potentially uh, be thought be something that 
that enters into their mind if we have continued instability in the treasury market, which we seem to have at the moment. Yes. And Joseph, for example, the, the Bank of England, they are hiking interest rates and plan on continuing hiking interest rates. And they did a special mechanism to provide support, provide liquidity to the UK gilt market in late September. And that, that support was absolutely necessary with, with gilt yields uh, uh, spiraling out of control. Uh, and it was yeah, tremendously I, difficult to communicate, right? We had all these people saying, well, why is the Bank of England doing QE when, when inflation is so high? But in, in a sense, it was a very different type of operation. It wasn't meant to ease interest rates. It was meant to provide stability to the debt market. And so they were using the tool in a, in a different way. So I think it's very difficult to communicate, which is why central banks like to use everything in the same direction. But... Um, depending on the structure of the financial system, it could help as well, like in that example in the Bank of England. Now they can continue to hike interest rates because they maintain stability in the debt market. As many have reported, their treasury liquidity is very weak. I think there's a very good article, that's exactly what you're posting by Robert Burgess, showing that by some measures, treasury market liquidity is comparable to what it was back in March 2020. And, and the treasury market being a foundational market, which everything is priced off of, and a source of safe assets, that's really concerning. And if you look at the treasury yields, for example, you have the 10-year moving around, say, 10, 20 basis points a day sometimes. That's obviously not healthy. Uh, my sense why liquidity is so poor, it's really simple. It's just that you have constant. So if you think back to what happened in March 2020, why was treasury market liquidity poor? Well, everyone was selling, but there weren't enough buyers. And so it was, it was, it, there was some um, mismatch there. And the same thing is happening here as well. Um, but the selling isn't from uh, investors trying to get cash. The selling is basically from both primary issuance. So the US deficit is very high. Um, and also through quantitative tightening. So what quantitative tightening is, is the Treasury goes and issues new debt and takes that money and repays the Fed. So then the Fed is repaid back, but then someone else basically takes their place. Someone else refinances the Fed out of their position. The net result is that more people in the private sector have to hold Treasuries. And this net issuance is extremely high. So I think this year we're expected to have about 1.5 trillion and compared to pre-pandemic level, about 500 billion. That's a lot of treasuries that the market has absorbed. The biggest buyers in the treasury market until recently was the Fed and the commercial banks and they're out. So we're having this same replay of what happened in March, 2020. A lot of people selling, but we're, we're trying to find buyers at these prices. And it seems like the market is having trouble finding them. Uh, on a broader issue though, the treasury market is just becoming so large um, it seems like the government just issues a trillion dollars of debt a year, and they're projected to for the coming years. And in order to find buyers for that, uh, I think the current yields may not be attractive enough. Certainly, Governor Waller has has made remarks that Nick reported as well, that perhaps it's just a pricing issue. If we have higher yields, lower prices, maybe we'll have more liquidity, and that could be. But between then and now, there's the market seems to be a bit unstable. There's a few things that the official sector can do to fix this. One of the things is, as you mentioned, Jack, uh, that Treasury Secretary Yellen has suggested that perhaps buybacks are an option. Uh, what a buyback is, is the Treasury basically issuing new debt and using that to buy old debt. 
this matters because the old debt is usually less liquid than a new debt. So you're replacing something that is uh, less liquid with something that is more liquid. And that would definitely help. And we'll hear more details about that if it happens. Uh, tomorrow, I believe, is when the Treasury release more inf information. There's a couple ways they can do that, but we'll find out more tomorrow. I mean, one of the things that we hear market participants talk a lot about is that, you know, inflation is so high, maybe the Fed will just adjust its inflation target higher, right? Right now it's 2%. Why not just go for 4%? Now, it seems more and more people are, are suggesting that. Maybe all they really want is that they don't want the Fed to hike rates anymore. I don't know. seems like people are like that. But have you heard any indication of this? And from, from your perspective, is this something even reasonable? No, I, I mean, I've heard nothing to suggest that that's anything that people at the Fed would consider right now. Um, and, the, and the reason for it is a little bit uh, similar to the reason officials were resistant to the idea of changing the target to a range uh, in 2018-19 when they were doing the framework review. So there was an argument then that maybe 2%, you know, offered a kind of a false precision and they should change it to something. I think Eric Rosengren had proposed one and a half to two and a half percent. And one of the arguments that I heard uh, against that, remember, through this period, inflation was, let's say, one six on core PCE. Um, and and one of the arguments was sort of it was defining down your, you know, you, you couldn't really meet the target you had. So you changed the target uh, so you could kind of claim victory. Uh, I think the same argument, you would hear that even more strongly now because the Fed cares so much about inflation expectations. That is the holy grail. And if you're going to do something like that, changing the target higher at a period where you haven't been able to meet your target, you're concerned you not, might not be able to meet your target. I just, I have a hard time seeing this Fed under this leadership at this time contemplating anything like that. The time to have changed the target, if you were going to raise the target, was before you got hit with this big supply shock and demand shock that drove inflation higher. And, you know, Ben Bernanke has been probably the most resolute in arguing against changing the target higher right now because of what you could do to dislodge inflation expectations. If the Fed keeps sort of opportunistically, is seen as opportunistically changing its target when it has difficulty either getting inflation up to two or now down to two, then why why even have a target? Uh, so I really, you know, the, the Fed is going to do another framework review. They said five years from when the last one happened. So let's call that 2024, 2025. And, you know, it's fun to think about what the world might look like then and what might be on the table then. But before you get there, I think all you're going to hear from this Fed is that they have to achieve two. They don't have to get to 2% tomorrow, but they want to get to 2% over the next few years because otherwise you're just fooling with inflation expectations. And that to them is probably one of the most dangerous things you could do. But Nick, that does uh, not mean that they need to see a core PCE number below 2% or at 2% for them to stop hiking or cut interest rate. It does not, it does not prevent them from, from flexibility. No, right? no, not at all. But that is, that is going to be the target. And that's what you're going to hear from them. And people keep asking me, you know, why don't you ask them at the press conference if they're going to change the target? Well, it's because I just don't think you're going to get an interesting answer. The answer is going to be no, 2% is our target. That's what we're going for. You know, you could, you could have a debate at some point. I mean, if one of the things I'm curious about is let's say we start getting core inflation, three month, six month annualized numbers 
that right now they're at five, right? On core PCE, they're close to five, maybe four and a half, but you know, in the high fours. Let's say you were getting something in the mid to low threes. I think at that point, then you do have a debate around the table around, you know, do you risk a recession to get inflation from two nine to two, from three and a quarter to two, from three and a half to two? Probably not. I think at that point, you could have something like the 1990s Alan Greenspan opportunistic uh, disinflation kick in. It's a little bit different from back then because they didn't have a 2% target back then. But, you know, look, Volcker stopped uh, doing what his monetary aggregate control regime said he should have done in 1982. Uh, inflation had gotten down to 5%. They were worried about blowing up Latin America and American banks that were exposed to debt. So they actually, you know, people talk about Burns doing stop and go. But Volcker did stop before it was obvious he had achieved what what they needed to do. And they actually started raising again in 1983. Uh, so, you know, there are different debates you can have along the way around, are you making enough progress towards two? But as to the idea of some wholesale change in the inflation target, I think you probably need to have a different chair, uh, a different leadership of the Fed um, to, to, to see anything that dramatic. I agree with that as well. And I think for the audience, I think it's, it's interesting, it's important to understand why the Fed thinks expe inflation expectations is so important. The Fed thinks that inflation expectations is important because it affects actual inflation a lot. For example, if you expect inflation to be 5% to next year, then obviously you're going to go out and buy stuff now. So if you have high expectations, that, that leads to high realizing expectations. So having anchored expectations around 2% is really important to having realized inflation of around 2%. And the Fed thinks that inflation expectations are anchored because the Fed has a target and the Fed is credible. If they start changing their target willy-nilly, then yeah. inflation's became unanchored and then people could actually then they could actually lose control of real uh, ex realized inflation. But Nick, you mentioned some really good uh, historic analogies back in the Volk area and so forth. And as I understand, you have basically read all the Fed transcripts in the post-war era. <laughs> um, so I think that's really helpful today because one of the things that we see now in the Fed is that there seems to be more political opposition as to what the Fed is doing. So we have obviously some more left-leaning senators complaining about the unemployment costs of the Fed hiking rates. Now, this is something every Fed chair has to go through. When you raise rates, well, there's, there's a distributionary effect. Some people are hurt. Some people are not hurt. Now, inflation is really serious. But also, I don't think people want to see others go unemployed as well. So far, the FOMC has basically been all on Fed uh, Chair Powell's team. But going forward, you know, that may be more difficult. Right now, uh, unemployment continues to be low. In the future, that may not be the case. And we may have inflation certainly trend lower. And also, we have a kind of a, a lot of new governors too. Do you have any sense as to how difficult it might be to build consensus? And I'm sure back then in previous eras, Volcker, for example, was also uh, it was also difficult to build consensus. But what about this FOMC? Is it is there an yeah. indication so far about as to how how that task might work? It's a great question. I mean, it's a question I ask myself every week. Um, so far, I mean, just look at the SCP and look at how much that projection of where they will they will be at the end of this year and in the terminal rate next year 
has changed from March to June when it went from, I think the projection in March was to get to around one nine this year. It went up to above three in the June projection. And we're talking about a big cluster. I mean, it wasn't like there were a few people way down, you know, in 2% land in the June projection where they were all above three. And the same thing at the last meeting, you had almost everybody uh, seeing, you know, either another, what was it, 125 or 100 basis points in tightening after the September meeting for this year. So, so far, I would say he's done, uh, he, you know, it's in, maybe it's easier to do when you just don't see the disinflation that you thought you were getting and you don't see the labor market cracking in the way that some people have expected. You hear a lot of analysts. I mean, I go back and look at analysts who say September is going to be the last hike because, you know, everything is going to fall apart after that. So, no, you're not seeing it yet. I do wonder when you're going to see it. You do hear some people laying out different ideas for how they might get to the terminal rate. Leo Brainerd gave a speech on October 10th where she was really focusing on, uh, you know, the, the things that might bring inflation down, the reasons that you don't necessarily have to go faster. It wasn't a two-handed speech. She was laying out a pretty convincing case, building a case for a slowdown, if not a pause. Charlie Evans, Mary Daly, Esther George, you're hearing some of that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the communication is like coming out of this meeting. Uh, you know, obviously reporters are always looking for signs of conflict because conflict makes for a good story. Haven't really seen it yet. On the political side, you are hearing some Democrats. I think there's a letter from progressives today saying Powell's overdoing it. Um, you saw Sherrod Brown, the chair of the banking committee last week, saying, why don't you pause John Hickenlooper, uh, which got my attention just because he's more of a moderate Democrat from Colorado. And so part of what I'm wondering is, well, gee, if this is what people are saying when you really have a, a still very healthy labor market and they're saying the Fed shouldn't keep raising rates, what you know, what's it going to be like a year from now if we do see a, a four and a half or five percent unemployment rate? Um, time will tell. But I think Powell is. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that he caved to Trump in 2018. I think there's an alternate explanation where they thought inflation was going to be, uh, you know, above 2%. And when it wasn't, it allowed them the freedom to do what, you know, Trump was saying they should do. Um, it wasn't because, uh, you know, Powell caved to Trump. If you think that he caved to Trump last time, then maybe you're going to wait this political pressure more now in terms of how you think the Fed will react. I just don't see that with um, with with Powell. Uh, I I think he views being the second coming of Arthur Burns as the far more grievous mistake to make. And you know there was a funny story that Randy Quarles, who is close to Powell, the former vice chair of supervision, told at the Hoover conference back in May. Which I'll, if you give me just a minute, uh, you know he he talked about how he used to work late at night when he was a governor because he was commuting from Salt Lake City so he could stay late at night at the Fed. And he used to trigger the panic button in his office. And so, you know, the first time he did it, the security guards came running into his room and said, what's the matter? You hit the panic button. And he said, oh, sorry, I didn't realize it. Uh, they stopped coming into his office. But one night, a new security guard, young man, came running into his office when he triggered the um, the panic button. And uh, Quarles had art on the wall. And the security guard was a little bit of an art buff. And so Quarles was showing the security guard the art on his wall. And he had a painting from Arthur Burns. And he had sort of said, you know, this was a memento mori because Arthur Burns 
was, and before he could even explain why he would have a painting of Arthur Burns up on the wall, the security guard said, I know who that is. He's the guy who let inflation run out of control. And Quarles had been asked by someone in the audience, you know, will this Fed keep raising rates, even if that means a 5% or higher unemployment rate? And the whole story was in service of saying yes, because there have been Fed chairs who have caused recessions and you don't really remember their names, but you know, even the security guard, uh, you know, he looked at the painting, Arthur Burns. Oh, I know who that is. He's the guy who let inflation get out of control. That's a great story. You definitely don't ever want to be Arthur Burns. Um, but is there anything we can learn from, from the Volcker area that might inform how much p- political pressure might be heaped upon Powell and how difficult and how it will be to have to withstand all that. From what I read, there was tremendous, tremendous amounts of political pressure because the recession was very difficult. Yeah, you had tractors around on Constitution Avenue, farmers protesting, builders sending two by fours and realtors and car dealers sending keys, you know, saying these are cars and houses that weren't sold because of you. And um, Don Cohn, uh, who was a staffer then has told a story about how they used to go out to these listening sessions and they'd take a bunch of abuse for what they were doing. And then Volcker, when these staffers would come back, he would pin little purple heart, uh, you know, trinkets on them as a thank you for, you know, going out and, and sort of facing the public and taking the slings and arrows of abuse. And today, of course, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, mythology around what a great chair Volcker was, but people didn't think that at the time. And if you read the transcripts, the politics were difficult. I mean, you had uh, the House Majority Leader in 1981 calling for Volcker to resign. Henry Gonzalez, who would become a top Democrat, he f- the future chair of the uh, banking committee in the House, saying that Volcker should be impeached. Ted Kennedy, a senator from Massachusetts, saying that the Fed should be put back inside the Treasury Department, completely losing its independence. Uh, and, and you can see in the transcripts, you know, they were talking about how in 1982, Volcker was saying the public's patience to keep running up the hill is limited. If we don't get this right, we may have uh, legislation next year. We, you know, if we get this wrong, we're going to have legislation next year revamping the Fed. Even if we do get this right, we may still have legislation revamping the Fed. So that probably if you bring it today. I mean, that probably argues for the Fed to try to get the interest rate hikes done faster. I think, you know, it's not the main reason they've been front loading, but it does add a reason to front load here is you want to get this over before, you know, the, the, uh, the damage really begins to show up. Because then if you have to raise interest rates, let's say a year from now, inflation just turns back up again and it's above 5%. It will be so much more unpleasant for Powell to have to resume raising interest rates a year from now than, than it is today. Nick, it reminds me of a question I really want to ask. So this year, the Federal Reserve raised by 25 basis points and then 50 basis points and then 75 basis points. And it's this neat little step up. Uh, Does the Federal Reserve aim to have that step down? In other words, does it want to do 75 basis points, which it's done many meetings uh, this year, then then a 50 and then maybe another 50, then a 25 and and then stop hiking? In other words, does it want to avoid going from hiking 75 basis points to hiking uh, at all, because you know it makes the Federal Reserve look look desperate or, or vulnerable in some way. Um, and you know, I, I know in March 2020, the Federal Reserve did a very drastic case, but that was a, a special case. So you know, if yeah. it, if we get a, a 50 basis point hike, is it 
likely that a 25 basis point hike will follow it uh, rather than a complete cessation of, of hikes altogether. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that they would see something like that as more elegant that you kind of glide into your parking space instead of just driving in there and slamming on the brakes. It's easier to explain what you're doing. It's harder to explain. I mean, if they were to do 75 and stop, something dramatic has to have happened in the economy and they would have to explain why they just went from 75 to stop that that's not sort of normal uh kind of what they do and there's there's a lot of inertia in how a committee especially a large committee how those committee dynamics form right it, vince reinhardt who was the head of the monetary affairs division under greenspan has talked about how a body in motion stays in motion a body at rest stays at rest once you slow down and once they do stop raising interest rates it will be harder to get everybody to agree that they should restart again if they need to. So that would argue for probably doing a little bit more than you think you need, right? You, you know, taking out insurance against what they see as the worst case, which is inflation expectations becoming unanchored. Easy to cut a little bit if you think you've done too much than to say, oh, shoot, we got to start hiking again. That is just not a place they're going to want to be. And they don't have to worry right now about being pinned at the lower bound, which was the big worry, you know, during the pandemic was, oh, God, you know, if the economy takes a leg down here, there's just not that much they can do because they've exhausted their tools. So, um, yes, you know, in theory, I think perfect kind of textbook central banking would be you slow into your pace. But it's it's hard to it's hard to predict what's going to happen. Greenspan had a number, I think, a couple of hiking cycles where 50 the last hike was 50 basis points, and then they didn't have to do any more 25s. Uh, I think they'd like to get to a place where they could take more of a meeting-by-meeting meeting approach. Are they going to do 25 at this meeting or not? Instead of, you know, just you get, you get more volatility when the options at every meeting are 100, 75, 50, 25. You know, that, that just creates more volatility in the whole uh, distribution. Nick, what you know, you ask a question to Jay Powell um, at the FOMC meeting. How do you think about deciding which questions to ask? And also, you, you know, you, you referenced this earlier. There's the most interesting question ever, uh, but but sometimes, frequently, that is not something you get an answer to. So, for example, if you the most you know important question would be, "Hey, uh, Mr. Powell, what is the terminal rate going to be?" But you're not going to get an answer to that. Um, so how, how do you sort of think about, you know, uh, sort of couching your question in a way so that Powell will, you know, give you the goods, uh, uh, so to speak? And also, can you apply that to tomorrow? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'm always thinking, you know, 10 different things that could ask, 10 different ways I could phrase those questions. Uh, sometimes I don't decide until they call on you. You don't know what order you're going to go in. You don't know what other people are going to ask. You want to try to follow up. I mean, to me, kind of just the the main objective here is to try to pull as much new information as you can out of whatever the issue is of the day, uh, which right now I think it's around the reaction function to continuing to raise at large increments or not. Uh, and I think I have a unique opportunity to try to get that information, try to ask a question that uh, that maybe nobody else is going to ask that uh, if he isn't asked that question, he might not have to give the answer that he's going to have to give. And sometimes people sort of, you know, they ask me, well, why, you know, why are the reporters always so docile? Why don't you stomp your feet and and pull your hair out? And really, you know, and I think that's a great question. I think sometimes 
a more of an emotional or performative question can can actually extract that information out of the policymaker, whether it's the president or the White House press secretary or the Fed chair. And if I thought that was the best way to get as much information as I can uh, to the broadest audience to serve the broadest audience possible, I, I would do that. I think a lot of the times, though, the, the way the Fed works, if you think you understand what the answer might be, you know, you're 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 working more in shades of gray. And so, um, you know, look at a congressional hearing. A lot of times Powell gets these really pointed you know, very sharp questions that he just completely doesn't answer. He doesn't have to answer them because they're sort of goofy or uh, there's just such an obvious answer. You know, well, why don't you have an NGDP target? Well, we, you know, I think it's pretty clear why they don't. I think I know what the answer is going to be. So I'm trying to focus on two. I, I run it through two filters. What's something that would be a really good question to ask? And will he answer it? And if the answer is no, he won't answer it it might still be a really good question to ask because you can show people that, hey, the chairman of the Federal Reserve had the opportunity to answer this question and declined to. And sometimes there is information in a non-answer. But usually what I think we're trying to do is to get the best understanding of why, you know, why are you doing the things that you're doing right now? Because the Fed is a, uh, you know, they, they don't have to testify in Congress every month, but they do a press conference every six weeks. And so it's an opportunity to, to try to provide some transparency and accountability, but also to get actual interesting insights about what the Fed is, how, how it is they're thinking about what they're doing at any point in time. Yes. Not an answer is an answer. Joseph, sometimes. If, if sometimes, yeah, sometimes. Joseph, if you got the chance, if you you know had a Nick's opportunity to ask Fed Chair Dave Howell a question tomorrow, do you have any idea what, what you might want to ask uh, him? You know, I, I would have no idea. And I would be worried that if I had a question and someone asked it already, I would end up blank. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm really impressed by all the thought that it has to go into that because, you know, like Nick mentioned, you have this really, really good opportunity to bring light, bring to light some information and you don't even know if he's going to answer it. So um, I, I, I think there's a lot of art that goes into this. So I'm looking forward to, to finding out what Nick is going to ask the chair tomorrow. And you, you know, one risk is that you overthink it. And I think I, I, maybe I sometimes do that. Um, but I'd also say, email me. I mean, if, if you think you have a really good question, there's something you think that, you know, it's phrased in just the right way. I always love to hear from people about what they think I should be asking the Fed chair. It doesn't mean I'm going to ask that question, but I'm always interested to see uh, you know, what it is that, that's on people's minds. Man, Nick, you shouldn't have said that. You're, now your inbox is going to get flooded. I don't think you have a big enough inbox for this. Well, ask him about M2, and it's like, you, uh, yeah. if there's something that you, you just like, they've answered it, you're not going to change their position. They're not targeting M2. You think they should be targeting M2. That's fine. They're not doing it. I'm probably not going to ask the M2 question. I'm sorry to the monetarists. Yeah, you don't want to get shut down. You don't want... You would ask how a question they don't actually refer to this thing that we published in 2017. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, sometimes what will end up happening tomorrow, I suspect, is he'll get the same question, you know, 15 different ways, right? It'll be about the slowdown. What are you looking for? What would you do it if it's this? Would you do it if it's that? And he's either going to want to answer it or not. He walks in there with the binder and there's tabs across the top. Um, and, you know, he's got sort of his talking points on whatever he thinks might be um, the topic du jour. And so sometimes 
you'll see that you ask the question, you kind of get the canned response, and then he'll say, well, now turning to your question. Um, and so sometimes it's a matter of sort of getting past the, uh, you know, whatever the talking point is and, and trying to actually get some useful intelligence about how the committee's thinking about this debate. You know, is the, is the terminal rate higher given what's happened in the economy? Sometimes he's going to, you know, at the last press conference, Victoria Guida from Politico asked him straight up about MBS sales. Mm -hmm. And we got a really interesting answer. He basically said, this isn't the time to be thinking about thinking about MBS sales. That, you know, that's a new piece of information for uh, especially people who are active in the agency MBS market. Uh, exactly. And that was mentioned in the minutes too. Unless you had, unless you had information from that press conference, you wouldn't know right. that the answer is basically no, even though right. it was suggested right. in the minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Victoria, for doing that. Cause I, I sometimes things that feel niche, I, I, you know, if you go early in the press conference, there's maybe more pressure to kind of focus big and broad. But, um, yeah, that was, that was a really, you know, if she hadn't asked that question, we just might not know that what, you know, what the chair was thinking about MBS sales until the next time it came up. Mm. Uh, Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you both here. Uh, Joseph Wang's book is Central Bank 101. It is a must read. I learned a tremendous amount from this. As you mentioned, Nick, Joseph is a true monetary plumbing expert, and you're an expert in asking questions. Do you have any questions for Joseph about SLR, uh, uh, treasury buybacks, uh, QE, any, anything regarding the plumbing that uh, you think our, our, our listeners would, would benefit from? Well, I mean, I guess my question to Joseph is, do you think that uh, you know, reserve drain is going to be more than they want. And how do you rate the the um, analysis that they may have to slow down uh, balance sheet runoff sort of middle of next year or, or sooner? Because I, I do see that speculation out there and I, I don't know. I think the reserve drain has been more aggressive than they expected. If you think back to what Fed presidents were saying before QT, they were pointing to large RRP facility and thinking that they could do an aggressive quantitative tightening because you have all this extra cash in the reverse repo facility. But the thing is that it doesn't really work that way. The, the plumbing is complicated. And so when you do QT, it doesn't necessarily drain from the reverse repo facility, and it hasn't. And as, you, as you've noted, Nick, that it, it seems to be coming from the banking sector. And if this persists, it's possible that they would take reserve levels to a level below where the Fed is comfortable. Uh, the good thing is there's a lot of tools to fix this. I don't think that this necessarily has to mean a stop to QT because of these tools. Uh, for example, you could have the US Treasury come in and fund buybacks by issuing a lot of Treasury bills. Now, if they issue Treasury bills, a lot of the money would be withdrawn from the RRP to purchase bills, and that would go back, uh, send the reserves back into the banking sector, or they can do tweaks tweak the SLR, um, as has often been discussed. So there's, there's a lot of tools that they can do that can allow them to continue doing quantitative tightening uh, without, uh, even if uh, the reserve levels continue to drop. So I'm not too worried about that. All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, it's been, an, it's been great uh, getting the chance to interview you. Um, I, I think that uh, I walked away uh, more prepared for tomorrow's FOMC meeting, and I, and I know uh, my audience will as well. Uh, just to put your, your books on screen again, uh, Nick, your book, Trillion Dollar Triage, folks should definitely check that out, as well as Joseph's book, Central Banking 101. By the way, guys, I read Trillion Dollar Triage, and I think it's a great account of what happened during the pandemic, and you really do learn mm -hmm. a lot about the Fed, so I highly recommend it.
Yes, thanks. Jeff. It's got history it. as, as well. Um, it covers more than more than just March uh, 2020, although that is the focus. Um, Nick, people can find your work on the Wall Street Journal. I recommend that people have the app that they sip the subscribe button so they get a notification anytime it comes out. Joseph, people should check out your writings at FedGuide.com. You are on Twitter at FedGuide12, and Nick, you are on Twitter at Nick Timoros. Guys, thanks so and, much. Talk soon. And Jack, Thank you. forward guidance, of course, the best macro podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Joseph. It, it, I don't know about that, but definitely my podcast does have a good name. Nick, will you give it that? It does have a good name. It does. It does. Yes. Thanks for having me, Jack. Enjoyed it. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, you can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. That's uh, Podbean as in, on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Finally, BlockWorks is looking for a video editor. Go to blockworks.co slash careers to learn more. Thanks for watching.